Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another enlightening episode of the Mindful News Podcast. I'm your host, Guy. As we navigate the landscapes of today's transformative discussions, we're joined by the remarkable Chris Altizar and Gloria Johnson Cusack. They're co-authors of The Growing the Elephant, Increasing Advantage for All. The world's seen an increased focus on diversity, equity and inclusion. So what's the story behind this, especially in the business sector? And how did it find its voice in our everyday conversations? So essentially, the the elephant in the room is the fact that there are unearned advantages, that some people have advantages based on who they are and where they are from. Mm -hmm. That is the reality that, that we are helping. Uh, hope, encouraging people to embrace and to work with, you know, to deal with that. And then hopefully, well, because then it's the, what, what do I do now? Because that's how I was raised. You know, the golden rule. You treat people that you'd like to be treated. And through those years of into schooling and, and after that, uh, realizing that um, what they dubbed the platinum rule, to treat others as they would prefer to be treated was in it was a mind shift because why would everybody not want to be treated the way I am and then recognizing that uh to satisfy the platinum rule of treating others as they would like to be treated one has to understand how they would like to be treated and to understand that one has to understand how they have been treated um what we believe very strongly is that um, this work and hopefully uh, the tools that are provided in, in, in growing the elephant will allow people to reflect to the point that they're able to see how their individual mindsets and actions. Uh, so the, the idea of growing the elephant is one to meet people where they are. We also deep dive into earned advantage. Now, before this podcast, I hadn't even heard of this term and I was really blown away by its nuances of diversity's evolution and its resonance within the legal spectrum. We talk about Chris and Gloria's journey to mindfulness and how it plays a huge role in their work. And we touch upon the complexities that the term privilege brings and how to navigate our diverse differences. Don't forget to like and share this podcast if it resonates with you and subscribe to our YouTube channel to make sure you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. All this and more at mindfulnews.uk. So first of all, thank you, Chris and Gloria, so much for, for, for joining me today on the podcast. Chris, following a, a podcast that I did with um, the wonderful Rhonda McGee, the, the tenured law professor, the author of The Inner Work of Racial Justice, an amazing spokesperson for healing ourselves and transforming our communities through mindfulness. So a quick shout out to Rhonda. I know, um, Chris, you're a big fan of Rhonda's work and you refer to her as, as your North Star. Yes. You love that you love that you love that podcast and you reached out. You explained um about Growing the Elephant, you know, a book that you co-wrote with Gloria, and just had to have you on the podcast. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining and really excited to have this conversation. Uh, we're very grateful for the opportunity. One way that I love to begin the podcast, and it helps the listeners to get a feel of you know who who are these people that we're about to engage with on this journey. Perhaps Gloria, if we could begin with you, um, what is it about that your youth that provides some context in the person that that you are today? Yeah. Um, wow, that question goes straight to the heart of 
every single thing, uh, all of the intention that comes behind the work of this book and the work of my uh, professional life. Um, I am uh, African-American and uh, Halawa Supani, which is um, a particular tribe um, based in North Carolina, the southern part of the United States, did not realize that that was a major part of my heritage until recently. So there's a backstory, which I will be happy to share with you. Mm. But in my youth, um, my experience was one of sort of coming up in a family of what we call now sort of sociologically working poor family uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, at the time, very much segregated uh, and with some challenging family circumstances, um, really straight through my my childhood and youth. Um, I went to a public school that was famous for tearing down the school buses that took the the uh, the students. They all came from public housing, most of them from public housing projects. And it was a tough environment. And yet there was lots of beauty. And I thrived uh, academically. Uh, in that junior high school, which was quite pivotal to my development. And then um, I ended up getting a full scholarship at a fancy-pantsy um, college prep school, Sidwell's Friends School, which was where the Obama kids went and lots of president's kids went, on a part of town that I literally did not know existed. Like, I got on the bus at 5.30 in the morning, and two hours later, I was in a part of town where everybody was white or something else. And I remember being mm -hmm. on the bus the first time coming to that part of town saying, where did all these white people come from? And they were, it was it was segregated by both race and class, something that you know very well based on your background. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of yeah. time in, in London and know that to be true. So I went there and from then on, you know, got a full scholarship to Columbia University, was told that I should not bother applying to any Ivy League institutions. Uh, got into all of them. Now I teach at <laughs> Columbia University in the graduate program. Ha ha ha. Fancy yeah. on you. Um, and uh, my that sort of stark contrast between my life experience as a youth and then everything that followed has really created a, a, a sense of empathy and compassion and commitment that I have to be a build a bridge builder. So everything that I've done in my life, um, working in every sector has been about advocating for the least of these. And it's what helped me, I think, at that time when I was pretty much 17, where I decided that I didn't have a name for it, but where I decided that I wanted to be a servant leader, a person who exercised power and influences people who have power to help create more opportunity, to help more people self-actualize, because my life experience has shown me in every stage that a lot of those outcomes are dictated by who we are, and where we come from. And that is really the framing of what uh, you see evidenced in this book, uh, Growing the Elephant. Yeah, that's amazing because, you know, in the in the, the guests that we've had on, on this podcast, you know, one continuing theme that emerges is the, off, after many years of research in their, in their own given fields and subjects, it's this idea of giving back and helping others. You know, at what point did that, you know, why in the service of others for you? I think because of the, um, uh, we don't, we try not to use the word disadvantage, but the fact that I was so much exposed to people who had unearned advantage. And I saw so much in my life experience and continue to see um, the inequities where outcomes can be predicted by mm -hmm. a pers person's identity. 
And that is a historical fact. And so in my, my family life, although it was challenging, I was very blessed to have parents who were very socially conscious. My father was a classmate of Martin Luther King's at Morehouse College in Atlanta. So I grew up with a, an ethos towards service and, and civil rights and justice. My mom was the second oldest of 14 children. She grew up in a sharecropping community in rural uh, North Carolina and was committed her whole life to giving back. So that was an ethos. We are people of faith. So I often say when I'm describing my youth, you know, it could be easily described as a rags to riches story. And it has been written about in that way. But that is an inaccurate characterization. I, I had a very rich formative life, even coming up in the midst of a world of challenges. And so I bring the respect for people who have come that road with all that I do and assume that there are lots of assets that are um, neat, that are, are, are there in all people. You know, I like to think that you know, talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. That is my lived mm. experience. So yes. the commitment of this work that Chris and I are doing is about helping to equip people, especially through reflection, especially through self-inquiry, uh, to activate and to be agents of change in their own lives, wherever they sit, and to move on those intentions that we share and to do it in a more powerful way. Very beautifully said. Thank you for that, Gloria. And and for you, Chris, you know, what is it about your upbringing that has shaped the man that you are today? Well, that's a great question. Because um, I did a lot of reflection. And the in the book, I begin the story in 2005. Uh, but for the purpose of answering your question, I, I grew up in Southwest Virginia, middle class family, uh, began primary school in the years of desegregation. So the, the busing of children from one part of town to the other and had had some very powerful experiences in that. Um, <clears throat> and it's one of them that just stands out. Uh, so on the first day of, of, of integration, I remember uh, I met a fellow named Manfred, who is uh, the second black person I'd ever met in my life. And uh, at the beginning, he walked into the class and he said, do you want to fight? And I said, no, because <laughs> I didn't realize how afraid he was because he's the one who had been bossed, not me. Yeah. Uh, and I said, well, you know, can't we just be friends? And I remember that now 55 years later, uh, whereas my one of my brothers had the experience of getting into <clears throat> a physical altercation <laughs> and carrying that for many, many years. So our experiences early in life, I love that you begin with that question, so much inform where we begin. So for me, the, the idea of, I went to an uh, all-male college, uh, which is still the only all-male college, now the only all-male college in Virginia. So I grew up in um, a very focused environment, a very, of folks who look like me, come from where I come from, look like who I look like, have the same life experiences. Uh, and then as I got into professional life, I'm, I am currently a retired and recovering HR executive, is how I describe myself. So I've, uh, I'm not a lifelong educator or anything else, but uh, a corporate executive. And where I 
get to the point describing the book of 2005 uh, and the many years in between, but the whole idea of everybody's equal and colorblind is good and that's the way it's supposed to be. And, uh, and I believed all those things. I believed that was possible, preferable, in fact, because that's how I was raised. You know, the golden rule, you treat people that you'd like to be treated. And through those years of into schooling and, and after that, uh, realizing that um, what they dubbed the platinum rule, just to treat others as they would prefer to be treated, was in, it was a mind shift. Because why would everybody not want to be treated the way I am? Mm, interesting. Mm, yeah. So it's, and then recognizing that uh, to satisfy the platinum rule of treating others as they would like to be treated, one has to understand how they would like to be treated. And to understand that, one has to understand how they have been treated. And that begins a more difficult uh, process of actually examining it. Gloria used the phrase lived experiences. And so for me, we're reflecting all the way back from my lived experiences to my childhood to the point today of my lived experiences, of course, they're mine and I own them. And that's uh, that's how life is, because that's what happened to me. Uh, to recognize that, well, other folks don't have that experience. And why is that? Uh, so the, the idea of growing the elephant is one, to meet people where they are. Because our uh, one of the things I, I it's funny I um, I've become a career, serial student, so I describe it. So I'm always studying one thing or another. The last through the University California San Diego, the MBSR teacher curriculum, which I completed, uh, was just the latest of those formal studies. Because uh, continuing to learn is is the willingness to continue to ask the difficult questions. Uh, and frankly, my my mindfulness experience, uh, I, I'm a novice. I've been practicing for many years and teaching for the last three, and I'm still a novice. Uh, but uh, beginner's mind attitude around this these questions of diversity, equity, inclusion, I think is what's necessary uh, just to begin the exploration. Uh, and then when we ask ourselves these difficult questions to be able to sit with them. Yeah. So that's a that's a quick journey from third grade sure. to now. And you just threw the, the words diversity, equity, and inclusion together. And, you know, what I'd mentioned is that as in preparation for this podcast and just doing my research, I see those words coupled together and the acronym, you know, DEI. Can you, can you help to explain, you know, why is that a thing now? You know, what, especially in, in business that, that it's a, you know, it, it's a, it's common vernacular at the moment, you know, when when and where does this does this appear and you know for those other listeners that may not be in the corporate world and you know living here in in europe or in, in london you know why why are they why are they together and you know how, how does how does it how did it come into its own right so i'll start and uh and gloria we can add so much more to to this but the so so um it's an evolution so in the united states uh when you were in the 1970s and the 1980s, this is a matter of employment, so anti-discrimination. So going all the way back to the passage of laws. So mm -hmm. the idea that it's illegal to discriminate people based on pick, skin color, 
their gender, when when do women get to vote, right? Because our our history as a culture has always been of, you know, can I be done now? Right. Well, okay, so we're you're now emancipated, you're not slaves anymore. Can I be done? Oh no, no, you can't. Mm-hmm. You have to level the playing field. Well, can I be done? Well, no, actually, women can't vote. Okay, well, now women can vote. Can we be done? Uh, well, we need a civil rights law for everybody. Okay, got that. Can we be done? Uh, well, no, actually, you're going to start restricting uh, women's reproductive rights. Oh, can we be done? <laughs> so it's the evolution of law uh, as it played in employment. So if you go back to employment, it was the idea of equal opportunity, which is the law, and affirmative action, which was the law. And then I think when you go through the evolution of of corporate companies, uh, the idea of diversity was the first, and that's really a 1990s thing, diversity, because it recognizes that the workplace is is being filled with people who are different from each other. And that's really the essence of diversity. We are different. What are our differences? That evolved into inclusion because the recognition was that, well, if you can be diverse, but if diverse people are not included you're not meeting the spirit and you're not actually gaining what we come to realize in the studies show as competitive advantage. Because what we know from the research is that diverse teams that that are managed well outperform homogenous teams. But the rest of that science also tells you that diverse teams that are not well managed underperform homogenous teams. So now, instead of a, a matter of moral rectitude or let's be philosophically or politically correct, let's talk about competitive advantage. So diversity and inclusion begins to give me a sense of I can win in the marketplace, hence that's the corporate side of it, and right. equity of opportunity. So now I have D, E, and I, and part of the, and to be candid, some of the reaction that you get from people who are skeptical of this work is they say, oh, it's an alphabet soup, because now you've added B, now you've added belonging. The way I think about it is that you have diversity because you do, you leverage it through inclusion, which will achieve equity and people will feel they belong. So that for me is, is they're not interchangeable terms. They have individual meaning. Gloria yes, yeah. is the expert on this more than me. Yeah, you did a beautiful job as usual explaining mm-hmm. it. The only thing I would add is that on the point about equity, um, we believe that there is lots of learning and um, we believe optimism that will emerge if people appreciate that the benefit of this work, of, of pursuing diversity, equity, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, is that outcomes are different for everyone, right? Equity is about power. There being power sharing where there are diverse perspectives, those perspectives that Chris just mentioned often uh, yield higher performance and innovation. And with those diversity of, of, of perspectives, people are making decisions about leveraging power and money and human resources to get different outcomes with a very specific intention of getting different outcomes, more equitable outcomes that are then going to create more innovation, more performance, stronger mm-hmm. communities, you know, when you talk about the, the um, external application of this. So um, what we believe very strongly is that um, this work and hopefully uh, the tools that are provided in, in, in growing the elephant will allow people to reflect to the point that they're able to see how their individual mindsets and actions 
can create a more equitable space, can have can, can create more equitable outcomes because of how their consciousness, how they think about, as Chris mentioned, the experiences of others and what's necessary to unlock the potential of individuals. It's very much about the individual agent's agent, right? Uh, Chris, uh, I love it when he says, you know, we're, we're very interested in the kinds of questions that get asked by the individual so that they can be their own best teachers and appreciate that maybe some of those assumptions that the people around me have, have put on me or assumptions that Chris and people in, in his early environment offered are not exactly, exactly lining up with reality. And we have to name reality. That's the you know acknowledged part of of, of unearned, what we call unearned advantage, recognizing that it is not a, not a level playing field, that people are treated differently, and we have to meet them where they where they are and come alongside to get to a better place. Just so, for the book, then, so growing the elephant, and I quote, is for anyone working to increase innovation, performance, and inclusion by building practices and mindset to meet and stay with what's difficult. It's for leaders and contributors at any level and those who help them build and sustain diversity, equity, and inclusion. Recommended by leaders, according to Bloomberg. We're very recently. fortunate for that endorsement. <laughs> I, have, I hadn't heard the term as well, um, earned advantage, again, before this week and, and reading the book. And so, and, and I, you just mentioned it there, Gloria. So can you help to explain where did that come from? What does it mean? And, and why is... You know, why is the word privilege a a faux pas almost? Or, you know, it's a word, like I, like I said, coming into this this podcast, like some, I'm out of my comfort zone when I'm talking about certain things because I feel that I don't want to be disrespectful or be out of place. And so I'm, you know, it was very careful to choose it. But, but why is that the case? And perhaps if you could just shed a bit, shed a bit of light and just help clear some sure. of the confusion. Sure. So I'm happy to start with why not privilege. And then Chris, I'll invite you to give your pithy explanation mm -hmm. about how we migrated to the new framework because he's, he does it much better than I do. Yeah. Um, and, and I think I'm, I'm well equipped to talk about why that word privilege doesn't work because my whole life experience uh, as an executive in every sector has taught me that it, the word is toxic. Um, in the American context and globally, I do work in, in Africa and in, in mm -hmm. international development as well. Um, when we start talking about the fact that individuals are privileged or societies are privileged or nations are privileged or colonizers are privileged, it puts people on their back heels. Uh, and we end up spending, for those of us who are operating with good intention and goodwill to get to a better place, even if all of us are in agreement that we want want to get to a place where we are willing to share power to make that happen, if we start the conversation by by naming the fact that some people have privilege and some don't, it almost it like picks a nerve that is never constructive because it makes people defensive about their own belief in themselves and um, people often, for all kinds of reason, interpret that if someone is saying they're privileged, it means that they haven't worked for something or that uh, they have something that they don't deserve. And so we end up spending so much time saying, no, 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 not that, that yes, in a yeah. practical way, it prevents us from, from getting to what we are talking about. So this reframing is meant to just take away that word that I believe is toxic and to offer a different framework that allows people to lean in 
to the conversation and into the work instead of feeling that they're getting called out. So that's why not privilege. Chris, you want to talk about why we think our way is better? Yeah, and just before <laughs> yeah, that, Chris, I, sorry, is, is the <laughs> is the um, the earned advantage? Is that, is that something that that you've coined? Or, or was so that an like, industry stand? Is that an industry term? Again, pardon my, my ignorance about this whole topic, oh, but is it? Is it no, it's it's uh, it's actually um, it is what makes it different. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Gloria described, because and just to be clear, we're not saying uh, we're not denying the reality that some people have uh, advantages over others by virtue of who they are and where they're from. The, the challenge is, is that word. So because if you have privilege, you really don't want to hear about it. I don't want to talk about it, think about it. And if you don't have it, you're exhausted and incensed by the reality every day. So mm. as a phrase, it, it really hasn't worked either way. So th- now the the idea of unearned advantage has, you can find that in the literature in, in buried deep in some um, uh, lower education, primary education work where they try to talk about that. But where we went with that is well, so if we want if we want to find a better way to talk about it first, uh, if we instead of privilege, let's talk about advantage. So the book begins with let's recognize that people have advantages or opportunity for advantages, and we're going to begin with earned advantage. So let's begin with the idea that anyone has the opportunity to earn advantage in this world. So if you be, when we begin with that, we found this in the, in the early days of the conversations, is that people would, yeah, that's right. People would, yes, very much agree that, you know, people can earn advantage in this world. Such as? Opportunity, promotion, uh, economic advancement, social advancement, opportunities to learn. These are all the different types of advantages that we think about uh, in the workplace for the most part. But if you think about it, it's beyond that as well. Mm. So if we can all agree that anyone can earn advantage, then good, let's take a breath. And literally, that's what we do in the book. We introduce the first of the reflective practices. The, the, right? breath, ex- take- the breath exercise, right? Your first yeah. exercise, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. so everybody take a breath because now, ah, now that we've accepted that anyone can earn advantage, let's talk about the role of unearned advantage. And in our take, we present the, 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 we define unearned advantages as being anything relative to who you are or where you're from. It gives you advantages in, I'll say life, but in professional life, more specifically. So for example, um, let's take me. So I am, uh, by inspection, you can tell I am Caucasian, I am white. I am uh, able-bodied. I am uh, extroverted. I was born and raised a Christian. I grew up with clean water and uh, good food and public education and a stable household. And, you know, if I was three inches taller, I'd have it all. Too bad. I'm just short, one unearned advantage. Because why? What does the science tell me is that height has an impact. So I can look at these things and we can say, we can say, well, the world should be colorblind. And one of the things we try to do in the book is help readers differentiate between what should be and what is. Mm. 
Yes. Because that's an important distinction. And there's the personality and a lot of things play a role in this. But the natural uh, tendency to, uh, you know, I see what I see. So I recognize my headwinds, but I don't recognize yours. I recognize your <laughs> tailwinds, but I don't feel like I have any. And, you know, when you're running and the winds at your back, you don't notice it. So exploring that notion of unearned advantage. So the way the book is framed first is to recognize advantage, earned and unearned. Earned first, because it frankly level sets. Unearned, because the science and the data tells us this, this is how humans are and the conditions. And then to work with unearned advantage. Once I recognize earned and unearned, I have to work with unearned, whether I have a little or a lot. So our book isn't directed at, well, if you have, because that's the, in our, from our experience, the challenge, in fact, the, the failure of a lot of diversity, equity, inclusion, programmatic education efforts is they come from a position of moral superiority or guilt, mm. trying to meet people from a position of you should be here. And if you're not here already, then let, you know, I'll tell you how you need to get there. Our view is to try to meet people where they are, even, and to be candid, if they're in a place that I maybe once was or never have been, <clears throat> but the challenge is to meet them where they are, as Gloria said, with better questions rather than a better case. Yes. So um, essentially the, ele the elephant in the room is the fact that there are unearned advantages that some people have advantages based on who they are and where they are from. Mm -hmm. That is the reality they, that we are helping, uh, hope, encouraging people to embrace and to work with, you know, to deal with that. And then hopefully then the, the was most helpful because then it's the, what what do I do now part of it. Yeah, how do I grow that earned advantage for someone right. else, including myself? Mm. Right. And a lot of that involves the contemplative reflective self-inquiry that we know has been such a major part of your life. Yeah. And do, do you feel now that with the, I've been reading a lot about the, the future of skills work and, you know, the humans plus machines era that is approaching. Is, is this, is this a, like when you, you mentioned, you know, corporate uh, and that's predominantly the field is, is this something more and more relevant and important as one of the, the growing skills like you look at the McKinsey list of skills that are do you see this as 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 playing in in that field as we look to the the future of skills i'll jump in and say we absolutely believe that mm. and we know that there will be progress working with people like you and others in the community if the people in power can recognize that this conversation should be considered vital among the competencies uh, that uh, lead to innovation and performance. Uh, our belief is that um, this consciousness, this understanding um, is, and the tools that are provided will enable leaders and teams of all kinds, whether it's corporate or foundations or nonprofits or higher ed to work more productively, to see each other more uh, powerfully and to come up with better solutions. From the strictly pragmatic business side of the, the, the proposition, we all know that globally, the workforce is becoming more diverse in every way, right? Race, gender, people with abilities, uh, uh, gender, age, the, the whole gambit. 
And we know that the consumer base is similarly becoming that. What we find is that very many leaders in all of the sectors that I have mentioned know that there is a business imperative to shift the way that teams are organized and the way that we think about our, our internal and external stakeholders. But the how has been elusive. Nice. And we believe that this is a better way that to talk about using the growth mindset um, and all of the things that uh, Rhonda McGee and others that you've mentioned have, have, have espoused is a more powerful way to get at the outcomes that we all share than to have what we believe has been the blame and shame game. And in many instances, the politicized characterization of what this work is, which um, we know is really not uh, aligned with the, the best intentions that we have. If I could just add one piece to that as well, which is part of the question you you focused on the automate the automation of work. Um, so what what we know is true is that machines work by programming, and when programming or the programmers are limited in their in their thought and their experience uh, when they rely on their own lived experience and not accounting for those lived experience of others those limitations show up in the programming which then shows up in limitations and even disparities of the machines yeah and we know that one of the things that we've talked quite a bit about in the in the book which is familiar to many in this diversity equity and inclusion work is this whole notion of uh, implicit bias that is built into all human beings. Mm. And um, there are you know, fun little games and more extensive tests that have demonstrated all kinds of longitudinal analysis and studies that we all have, even those of us who consider ourselves to be well along the path uh, in, the, in the journey that we're describing. As human beings, we are wired to have implicit bias. And so there is an exercise that we encourage uh, readers to take that will show them that, um, that these biases exist. So the issue is not whether we have the, the biases. The issue is where, whether there's the level of awareness and whether we can, through mindfulness and reflection and self-inquiry, work around them and not get in the way of what we want to achieve. Yeah, it's very much like in my teaching of mindfulness, it's like, you know, you're thinking all day long. Anyway, you can't stop it even if you tried, but it's, it's developing that skill to be aware. Oh, I, you know, well, once you realize some of the chaos and, and the thinking that's going on, then you can be in a position to, to, to play a more proactive role in, in how you, you know, you respond to thoughts rather than just, just reacting. Uh, uh, just very quickly, I see that, you know, Paula Caligiari is a, um, a mutual friend of ours. Paula uh, on cultural agility. No, I, 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 I just I just throw that in there because she she we we did a podcast with her recently, and she, you know you Google anything on cultural. Oh, agility there she is, and she is the, the the first name that pops up. And I saw it, I thought, uh, uh, another name that cross so crosses over, and um, you know we'll be releasing our episode with her quite soon. Oh, great! Well, I must say that that analogy that you just drew is brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, it's exactly the the approach that we think um, has, have found is it works well. And it's not just theory. I mean, you know, Chris and I did this book. We had a ball doing it. Both of us teach in you know, graduate programs and 
all over the world. And yet this is not an academic approach. It's grounded in, in you know, academics and research and what have you, but it is meant to be a, a very practical book that is based on our experience experiences as leaders working with other leaders. So we hope that there's some sensitivity to um, the times and the kinds of um, attitudes and challenges and the noise, you know, mm -hmm. that people will have when they embark upon this work. And we just try to just say, yeah, we get it. This is hard. And there are folks on all sides of ideological and political spectrums who bring baggage to this work that is unhelpful. And we're trying to unclutter that baggage. So if we could just shift a little bit now, so how how did you guys get into mindfulness, and you know what impact has that has that had on, on your life, and you know the way that you live your life, and the way that you interact with others, etc. Uh, I'll be very keen. You know, was it an illness or too much stress, and you thought I need something, or you know what what's the introduction in, into mindfulness for for you? And perhaps Chris, we start with you. Sure. Uh, so for me, the um, the the exploration and the, the, just the whole notion of trying to pay attention, you know, in the current moment uh, began with martial arts practices. That's right. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, so my my wife, both my sons, and I all were uh, studying karate uh, for the last over twenty years, and so that was that was the beginning of a kind of a light touch piece into it. And there were some aspects of of quiet moments and reflection and and applying more uh focus to movement and katas and forms but when um in 2016 when uh i retired from corporate life uh i got more serious around meditation as a practice and sort part of that was completing my yoga teacher training which i still which i now teach a couple days a week and much more getting into that the the notion of quiet and reflection and and sound as as a tool, and it's funny. I um, I'll share the story, which some may resonate, some may find annoying. But in, in 2016, <laughs> we went to a uh, went to a mindful conference in Washington mm -hmm. D.C. and uh, there were thousands of people there, and my wife and I were there. It was just it was very exciting, and you know some of the giants were there uh, speaking. And, and then they uh, then they had the session on um, here's all the, the programs, the $10,000 programs that you can pay for to do that, uh, to be qualified to teach it, which which bothered me, turned me off. Mm. And uh, being the person who I was at that time, I said, well, I don't need to do that. I can do this myself. So uh, so I began uh, more of a self-study on uh, Vipassana and Yes. Yep. Just simple meditation. Uh, and that's where my first realizations around inequity surfaced. And I wrote a series of articles in 2016, 17 is can mindfulness reboot DNI? Because that was this uh, notion that the programming, it was not uh, meeting people where they were, but then that was a flirtation. I dove into it, did a program with it and then kind of left it alone. Um, and then decided a couple of years later that uh, I really did need the formal training. Mm. Uh, so I went, uh, connected with folks, uh, took some programs at UC San Diego, the Center for Mindfulness there, um, and then enrolled in the, the teacher training program, which is a two-year curriculum. Um, and that was the best decision I could make at that time. 
because what I learned about uh, whether it's karate or yoga or meditation, um, studying to be a teacher doesn't require me to teach, but it does require me to be better at the practice. And so that was uh, in those years, 2019, 2020, I'd finished up that and have taught MBSR a few times since. But the relationship to the work goes back to getting more comfortable uh, with myself and the application to being in, because my life has been incredibly, and I'll use the word privileged. I have lots of unearned advantages. I have not had to face the challenges that so many had. Um, we've had illness in my family. We've had uh, we've had some very difficult situations in my family, which mindfulness has been absolutely central to navigating uh, to this point. And it's interesting because um, you know, John Kabat-Zinn, you mentioned his his work, the MBSR. You know, he, he's actually a good friend of mine. You know, I've run his Facebook pages. You know, we've had him like five, six times now. And when he comes to London, I'll pick him up. We do our carpool podcast where we do like a one in the car together. And it's every time it's weird to think every time I hear the MBSR, it's like, oh yeah, that's John's work, and it's the role that he's played to you know. To, to, to help get us mindful, you know, taking his approach. It's, it's, every time I hear it, it just blows my mind that, you know. I, I when when this podcast is done, um, I can't wait that just to know that he will have heard it. Yeah. Because I've, I've listened to John, I don't know how many times and been part of the MBSR teacher uh, community that he's built. Uh, and he is incredibly inspiring. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And for you, Gloria. For you, Gloria yeah, because uh, this is my favorite subject to talk about. You know, this is where I thrive. So I, 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 I can't. You know, I love talking about this. So I, I love hearing it. Uh, <laughs> you, are, you are both beaming as you yeah. describe your experience and the, and the yes. community. Uh, I think that we all are, are now a part of. I came um, upon uh, meditation after having spent maybe twenty years of being really devoted to just a, a prayer practice as, as a Christian. Yeah. And I happened to accompany um, a very dear friend of mine who was a board member of the David Lynch Foundation mm -hmm. uh, to one of their fundraising events in Washington, D.C. For those who don't know, that foundation is very much committed to um, funding and, and creating programming to make uh, meditation pervasive all over the world and especially uh, increasingly now in underserved uh, communities uh, for school children and the like. It was such a powerful experience because smartly they had people give first person testimonies about how meditation had transformed their lives, especially in managing conditions of trauma. And all of my work has been around uh, helping underserved um, a population. So I was all and signed up for it on the spot to uh, participate in some of the training that day. The next week, I had a very traumatic, unexpected life experience uh, occur to me. It, is the, it was the most traumatic experience I've ever had, which I will not talk about, but I had uh, breast cancer at 29, and, and that was a cakewalk compared to um, what happened that very next week for me. Mm. And um, so two weeks later, I went to that TM meeting in Annapolis, Maryland, 
And um, I remember in that meeting and in the three subsequent meetings, I cried the entire time. Um, and it was a safe, beautiful, wonderful place to just be. Um, fast forward, I ended up relocating, uh, to Florida. As soon as I got here, I looked for, uh, a TM community. I just last week went to one in West Palm beach, um, Island. And that's where I live now in, uh, in Miami and, and some, my family is in South Florida. It's the thing that I look forward to, not just because the practice has become such an integral part of my life, which essentially fortifies and informs my the prayer life that I had already. But also what I love is the community that yeah. um, mm-hmm. that you know this provides where it's almost sort of a pre-selected group of people who have just set their intentions on something beautiful. Um, and I'm sure everyone who knows me well, has had to hear me give my own testimony about <laughs> yeah. uh, about it, and 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 particularly in the African American community where the faith tradition is is strong, um, there can be some misunderstandings about meditation and its compatibility with other faith traditions. Yes. And so, in some ways, I've become a bit of an ambassador for explaining um, the the beauty of it and how um, it can be beautifully integrated uh, into uh, our growth experiences. And what I would go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just wanted to add in. um, So we did a, we did a call out to Rhonda B. McGee, North star. Uh, I also would like to call out uh, David Trelaven and his work on trauma sensitive mindfulness. Uh, If you're familiar, um, it's a, it's a very powerful uh, education and David's built a curriculum around tr- truly trauma sensitive mindfulness yes and does, does, does ring a bell yeah it's uh it's i i recommend that to anyone and everyone who's in the space especially if you're in the teaching space because it's it's great awareness of what others have faced so um i i just i wanted to i wanted to make it i think of it john of course john kept it's amazing and then rather uh David which we actually mentioned in the book um mm-hmm. around the window of tolerance yes because what happens when when we're and you know this of course squeeze that when you're thinking about difficult things uh you can get out of your window and then yeah. whether it's fight flight freeze appease or whatever your reaction may be uh but recognizing that guiding others through these difficult conversations also requires that awareness because uh, we don't know how people have been traumatized. And Gloria's story is just so powerful. And just being aware of that um, in the introduction of the right questions. So we say, you know, our, our program, our program, we don't have a program. Our approach is one of asking better questions. Being mindful in the asking of those questions. So I just wanted to shout out to about David yeah. there too. Lovely. Yeah. And we can also offer that for any uh, of of the audience members for this podcast who aren't already sold on the benefits of meditation and mindfulness, uh, I would just like to to assert that for me and for in, in the experiences that I've had with others who resist this kind of um, commitment, there's 
lack of understanding about the practical usefulness of it, especially for people who consider themselves exactly. to be yes. change makers, you know, mm -hmm. activists. I was a lobbyist, you know, for foundations <clears throat> and nonprofits. And what I have found through my practice is that it has given me greater efficacy because I am more comfortable with my emotions and my ability to be centered in any situation. There used to be a time in my life, maybe you can intuit from the story you know that I've given, where I was not always comfortable with the fact that I am an empathic person. Mm -hmm. And now I completely embrace that and know that that is my superpower in all that I do, that I can present my feelings, be transparent, be humble, all the things that many of, of you know the people that you all of us read and follow espouse that, that, that I'm able to do that and be more impactful in my engagements with other human beings because of that strength. Yes. So I hope that this message is, is helpful to anyone who is doubting uh, any aspect of the benefits in, in that regard, you know, being in the, in the world as opposed to just helping me feel better or be better in my internal space or my family, which of course is all a wonderful outcome, are all wonderful outcomes too. Yeah. And I think, you know, just given the conversations that I've had, you know, whether it's a, you know, with a Muslim or a Christian and different varieties of Christianity, that when one goes to pray, whatever religion, that that connection that they have, the more mindful you are, you notice that even in prayer, we get distracted. And so you could be, you know, I've got five minutes, so I'm going to say my prayers. And for that person, they're really, you know, they believe in that moment they're in like a you know direct connection to to their god yes and it's like so whatever religion that you are this is a tool of constant to allow if you want to have that, that that five minute prayer let it be a five minute of prayer rather than you know three and a half minutes of prayer and then a minute and a half of just mind wandering and oh i'm, I'm praying again Where i love can, that you know really be connected and just observe, yeah ah, I've, I've just strayed and just imagine, you know, if you actually face to face and sat, you know, next to your God, it would be almost disrespectful to, you know, we're having a conversation and all of a sudden you think about the shopping that you need to do later on or, <laughs> or the email that you need to write. And it's like, but, but, but it's, you know, so whatever religion it's, you know, love your God even more, connect even yes, more. They're be, not mutually exclusive. Be more deeply connected to your, you know, to, to your prayer and to have that, that moment. So I thought I would just throw that in there. And just just lastly on this point, how has the feedback been in the book, but specifically to the the breathing exercises and the and the mindfulness aspect of it? Is it has has it been taken well? And are, are people getting the benefits that you want them to get out of those those exercises? You know, I'll start with it. It's it's hard to know for some um, what we did in the in the in the pre-publication work, uh, sharing the drafts and getting responses, uh, what I what I found is that uh, people will take one of two approaches to this. One is, oh, you'd like me to read the book? Let's see how fast I can read it. Mm -hmm. um, the other is that I'll read the book as you tell me in the book, because in the book we we quote Desmond Tutu: "You eat an elephant, you know, one one bite at a time." And so, uh, and I've gotten in probably half a dozen conversations with people uh, 
they share the, and I'm going to say intentional discomfort of the practices. I had a friend of mine text me one night, just said, I just uh, did the, uh, the benefit of the doubt exercise. I hate it. And I hate you. <laughs> and I said, good. <laughs> so it's the, which, you know, and that's, that's the challenge I think is that uh, for, we, by taking the approach of asking better questions, um, there's no, there's no proper pace. Yes. So like when uh, it's funny, in your early conversation, Corey and I had a conversation with a, a corporate leader who said, oh, okay, this is great. What's your program? Mm -hmm. said, well, we don't have a program. Like you don't have a program? Well, what am I supposed to do with this? Uh, read it and try it. So this may be a colossal commercial failure. <laughs> We'll see, but that's not why we wrote it anyway. Yeah. So the idea that uh, people will grapple with it is good. Gloria. I have a hopeful story based on early, a conversation I had two weeks ago. Chris and I were talking about it the other day. Very powerful board chair of a very powerful foundation white male, fourth generation, super rich. Did I say powerful guy? <laughs> um, read the book. It's a person that I've done some work with uh, and his organization. And he did what Chris said, which is ignore our suggestion. Uh, and he read the thing from beginning to end because he wanted to get ready for a meeting that he and I were having. And... Um, said it was a really powerful experience reading it but the week after was the time when he needed to go back and do the exercises around reflection and meditation and breathing because he was walking around with the challenges <laughs> the awareness that came up through um the what was shared um in, in the book and it was upsetting to him and he needed to wrestle with it. And he said it was one of the most powerful experiences he's had. Like literally he told the story about being in a grocery store where he was standing in line and he was thinking about one of the um, stories that was actually a very almost first person story about something that had happened uh, in my life with a few characters changed to protect the innocent. Um, <laughs> and he didn't know that. He didn't know that. And he was reflecting on it. And he said he, he actually got in his car and had to sit and really take a few breaths um, to get through it. And so I don't care if every single person who reads the book doesn't do the exercises. That one story has me jazzed because this person is going to be changed. He has influence in lots of other places. He's going to carry himself everywhere he goes and be a person, I think, who espouses some aspects of, of what are, um, are included in, in this book. And so I think there's some hope there. That that that's a, a beautifully beautifully said again. So I think again, thank you so much for doing this and, and for sharing. You know, I, I really hope you've enjoyed it. And one of the ways I like to end the podcast is giving your experiences and the book and all the learning lessons you've taken on the way. 
you know, uh, I just wanted to throw it to ask you both. What matters most to you? And then um, perhaps Gloria, if you want to take the, um, the first run at it. What matters most to me in the context of the book or? No, this, this, this is again. for you. This, this period. What, <laughs> period. What matters most to you? Yes. Uh, what matters to most to me in my own, I'll answer it around my own sense of personal agency, is that I operate with boldness to realize what I believe is the calling in my life, which is to do all that I can to help others self-actualize. And if that means that I'm doing that, working one-on-one -on -one with people who have that aspiration, or if it means I'm working with people with tremendous power, who are able to influence the outcomes of others, to be their best selves, that's the thing I care about. I believe that there is that of God in every human being. And my commitment is, is about doing all that I can to create circumstances where people can be healthier and wiser and freer. That is a servant leader's mantra, and that's pretty much what I live by. Consistent. I like it. <laughs> and for you, and for you, Chris, you know. So in in the spirit of consistency, um in, in nineteen ninety-six. I, uh, I I crafted, that's back when everybody was doing mission statements. And I crafted my own mission statement, which I have held to this day. And that mission statement is casting light on the path to salvation by developing people and the organizations in which they work. So I don't tell people what salvation is. That's not my job. It's more time with your family, more time on your golf course, more time with your God, whatever that is. But if I can develop people and the organizations in which they work, if I can help individuals and beginning with leaders, because that frankly is, that's most of my background, reduce the noise level, reduce the chaos, uh, give them, help them find their clarity in the organization or between their ears or in their heart, then perhaps that will give them a little bit of time to go find or pursue further that notion of salvation or be just be in. So that, um, I had reason not long ago to talk about this as well, but the uh, but that, that mission hasn't changed. Yeah. And this book I think is just the latest expression of it. And I, I fall short every day and I um, just get up the next day and, go again beautiful can you so, tell how much fun we're having please can you just tell yeah yeah it's just great it's a blessing it's just great <laughs> yeah i mean I, I would just to see the work that you're doing and the circles that, that you that you teach in and that you work with and and the book now i'm just so excited for you guys and i just think you have a wonderful message so if i'm a listener and i want to you know support i want to get a hands you know I want to get a copy of, of you know growing the elephant how how does one do that wherever you buy books uh if you're into amazon or barnes and noble or in the states if they're bookshop.org if you don't want to contribute to corporate pockets 
but basically wherever you buy books, uh, it is a UK publisher, actually, Practical Inspiration. Mm-hmm. Uh, our good friend, Allison Jones, runs that shop. Um, and they are they are our partner in the book. Or you can awesome. go to the website and get more information about it too. Growing the Elephant, the name of the book. Yeah, yeah. and it's a be- right. beautifully, yeah, beautifully made website. And I saw that, you know, the section on growth mindset reference to Carol Dweck. And I know that a lot of heart and soul has, you know, gotten into to making that look beautiful. And um, I encourage everyone to, to get a copy of the book. And again, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you so much for, for joining me and for sharing your wisdom and for uh, and your heart as well. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's been such an honor. Thank you for all you do.